0: Again, that's podsurvey.com slash happening. Thanks for your help. Are there black people in the industry? Very, very few. Very few. I mean, I can count on one hand, probably, uh, as the ones that I've met through 25 years in the industry. So it's really, really a very white space. It really is, yeah. It really is. (laughs) And is it very extremely male? Pretty much. That's changing some, but yeah, I don't know the official statistics, but if I I had to guess, you know, certainly in the management ranks, I would guess it in the 75 to 80% male.
1: Hello, and welcome to Why Is This Happening? With me, your host, Chris Hayes. Well... I will tell you the honest truth, which is that we had planned another podcast for this week, which is the second week of June as you're listening to this, but we decided to delay it because of the shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Obviously, we've been covering on the show where 19 children and two adults were murdered by an 18-year-old who acquired... I think two possibly three weapons, legally, two of them assault style rifles, one of them a handgun, it appears, tons and tons and tons of rounds of ammo, and went into that school and killed all those kids uh, and it's been pretty awful to think about and to cover it's also i 'll just you know say that I've been hosting my show now for longer than nine years. And hosting a television show for coming up on eleven years, and have covered—I don't know—a dozen and a half, two dozen, maybe more mass shootings, and uh, you know, it's just a terrible, soul-crushing sameness to it. I mean, there's the soul-crushingness of the first, the what, the actual facts of the the atrocity and the menace and the sorrow and the trauma and the uh, awful effects on people's lives and then the second order conversation about guns and about why it wasn't the guns and the third order conversation about like will congress act this time and all of this feels to me you know really ritualized in a way that i i almost find offensive to be part of the ritual because the ritual itself is so horrendous and i've been looking for ways to like break out of it Just to find different ways of thinking through the problem, thinking about what it is, what is, why are we this way? Why do we have this American exceptionalism? If you're listening to this podcast, it's likely you know this statistic, but the U.S. is the most armed place on Earth in terms of civilian guns. We have more guns than cars, more guns than people. We have 120 guns per 100 people. The next highest is Yemen, which comes in around 55. So it's like we're just off the charts. There's just American civilian relationship to weaponry, to guns, to gun ownership, to gun acquisition, to gun collecting, to gun usage is just in a totally category by itself. The legal regime guarding it is completely in a category itself. We just exist in a different universe than everyone else. And one of the things that I think is actually really important to understand is while that has been the case for a while, while the U.S. is an outlier – it's actually gotten worse in the last 20 years, and I would say particularly in the last 10. So one of the ways I've been trying to work through thinking about this that doesn't run into the same ruts, which are soul killing, is just to think about what stays the same and what changes. So what when there is change, right, like when things happen in a given direction, gun sales spike up, as we've learned from a recent ATF study, right? Gun manufacturing gone up. Gun laws have been getting loosened in a bunch of states aggressively, what is happening that's driving change in that direction? Instead of sort of banging your head against the wall of, you know, the filibuster, Joe Manchin doesn't want gun control, Republicans, blah, 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 NRA, yada, yada, yada. Like, what are the things happening within gun culture, within the relationship of Americans to guns that is changing for the worse as a way of countering like the first part of the problem, right? Like the first thing to do if you're going in the wrong direction is stop moving in the dire- direction. So even if you can't turn around and get back, right, the U.S. is moving in the wrong direction in guns. It's not just that it's, you know, we're not getting gun safety measures and all this. It's actually the boat is headed in the wrong direction. So we have to stop it, turn it around, and then start moving in the other direction. And, and one of the ways I've, I've sort of thought about that is thinking about guns and gun culture and the gun industry, And one of our booking producers called my attention to a guy by the name of Ryan Bussey. He is a former firearms executive, and he's also a senior advisor at Giffords, which is an organization dedicated to ending gun violence, which was, of course, started by former U.S. Representative Gabby Giffords, who, of course, was shot by a gunman at a constituent event she was doing outdoors in a mass shooting that was one of the mass shootings that I've covered in my time on air. And he's the author of a book called Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America, which is a book about his experience as a firearm executive and battles of the industry, which is a pretty unique and interesting perspective. We had him on the program on All In With Chris Hayes, which is our show on MSNBC, which is 8 p.m. on weeknights. And I talked to him for five minutes, which is the length of a cable news segment. As soon as I got off air, I said, oh, I'd I'd like to talk to him for much longer than that. So, Ryan Bussey, thanks for coming on now. Why is this happening?
0: Well... Like you, Chris, I wish we weren't talking about this. As much as I admire you and your show and your desire to get at issues and intellect on these things, I wish we weren't doing it. But here we are, and um, this is much of what you just enumerated is exactly why I wrote this book. Because I feel like uh, I know I'm tired of getting the questions, like how did we get here, how did we get here, how do we get out? And so I finally decided... I had to stop fighting from inside the industry, fight from without, and I had to tell everybody the story of how it is that we got here, and um, so that maybe we can, as you said, reverse course here.
1: So I want to go back to the very beginning about your upbringing and, and relationship to guns and how you got into the industry and all that, but let's just start at the point where you brought up, which is... I think a little bit about – I don't know if you saw this when the – remember when the Russia – the RTV correspondent for Russia state television like you know went on air and said stop the war and yep. she was arrested and she was detained and she gave a talk afterwards. And it was really interesting because I think a lot of people in the West were like, wow, that's incredibly brave. Good for her. There are a lot of people in Ukraine who were like, oh, now, now you're doing mm-hmm. this? Like – It's a little late, like you and your propaganda outlet have caused so much destruction. So like for the people that are hearing you were a gun executive and you've sort of made this turn, you've written this book, like what changed in you Yeah. and how do you think about your
0: former self? It's an excellent question, something I struggled with while writing the book. So I don't, in a lot of ways, I don't think that I've changed at all, certainly not over the last 15 or 16 years. And I kind of have to go back to the beginning just a little bit to describe that, which I will, but I spent 15 years in the industry Yes, I was selling guns. Yes, I was building a gun company. But they are guns and a gun company that I am still proud of. I am still a gun owner. I still hunt and shoot with my boys and my father. Those are integral parts of my culture. But I believe in an immense corresponding responsibility and safety, something that I think is you know way out of whack in the country now. I grew up with these things. Many of my best days of my life were associated with guns and have been associated with guns. Hunting, like I said, with my boys or my dad or my brother or my grandfather or whatever. And I don't think of myself as defined by guns. My friends don't think of themselves as defined by guns. Many, almost all responsible gun owners that I know are disgusted with so much of the gun radicalization that you have seen across the country. I spent, like I said, 15 years warning people that this crap was coming that it was dangerous, that the marketing practices that the NRA and the firearms industry were engaging in would lead to these kind of outcomes, that responsible gun owners should be casting incredible aspersions at it. We should be ripping it apart. I was castigated, and many people, many other people in the industry who who gave the same kind of warnings were run out, they were trolled, they were fired, whatever. And if this sounds a lot like our modern right-wing, Trumpish political system, well. I believe that they're one and the same, right? Like the NRA perfected yeah, yeah. all this, and then it became the right of our yeah. the right wing of our politics.
1: That point, I want to talk about this safety issue, which I've I've been thinking a lot about because that's one of the things I find a little hard to square. There's two thoughts I had. You know, one was I, I just took this trip out to I was just in Arizona with my family. I've talked about it on the podcast. One of the things that always is always striking to me when you are in the great open west of the country, I'm talking to you, you're yeah. in northwestern Montana. Yeah. There's an interesting a little bit of a paradox, a little bit of attention. tension, these two things side by side in the culture of these places that are, you know, big, rural, expansive, beautiful places. This kind of libertarian, you know, you own your mm. land and I don't want the government breathing on my yeah. neck. But then if you zoom in, whatever it is, if you want to go fish in a stream, if you want to go hunt, you know, javelinas yeah. in, in yeah. Arizona, if you want to go camp, there's a ton of regulation. Yeah. And it's It's just part of the, like, way that everyone operates. Now, some people don't like it and they find it annoying. But, like, someone said to me on the internet the other night. They're like, it is harder to get a fishing license in Texas than it is to get an assault rifle. Yeah. Like, just straight up. That is the truth. And I do think it's weird that we do have so much regulation over so many other parts of the activities one associates, when you say your culture, like, All of the activities one associates with the kind of great, beautiful, wide-open mountain west of this country are pretty regulated (laughs) for good reason.
0: You're exactly right, Chris. And that's, as you probably have noted, there is this movement amongst gun enthusiasts and kind of the radical side, which I I fear is leading much of the gun movement, uh, this idea of Second Amendment absolutism, meaning— Literally, there can be no infringement of your gun rights. So all of these reasonable regulations that you describe, a phishing license, God forbid, these sorts of things, like those things are infringement. So they focus, you'll often see, I don't advise you do this because it's a tough existence. But if you go on message boards and, you know, websites that traffic in this stuff, they often say the three words shall, or the four words, shall not be infringed. They just like repeat it over and over right. and over and over as if. Right. And I try to explain to them like, you know analogies examples like like i love the freedom of driving places but i don't i don't value it so much that i drive 90 miles an hour through a school zone like, right that's not an infringement like that's just what reasonable people do
1: yeah and the other part of it too is like this idea of safety there's another sort of interesting thing at the core of this sort of cultural conundrum too, which I also think about a lot. So re- there, you've got regulation on the one hand, which is like all parts of our lives are regulated in all kinds of ways. And even when you think about, particularly when you think about children, yeah. right? We think about like things with children, like so I made this point, Benji Sarlin is a great reporter at MSNBC because I was talking about like, it's crazy when you think about, right now, like I'm doing a, like, you know, there's a house renovation I'm mm-hmm. working on. And like, you know, you just really are up, like you can't just like, only rewire this, you got to rewire this, yeah. you got you to install it. There's a ton of regulation and it's all the like, you know, it's all safety focused, even though, the, you know, in some ways it's fairly remote, the risk. Yeah. And then you've got like stuff with kids is even more like that. Like, you know, car seats that I bought 10 years ago got recalled yeah. because, because, and then guns are in this totally different category yeah. than that. Yeah. And I, I think about it too, in this sort of, you talk about your, you know, hunting with yeah. your dad. And your boys, you know, there's this, there's an interesting thing i found when I've been around like people in the trades, for instance, like construction guys, right? Carpenters. There's a lot of sort of traditional male culture and there's a kind of like, you know, tough guy, boastfulness, whatever. But it's also the case that like in those subcultures, construction, people are really safety focused. They are, yeah. Because you learn the hard way that if you are not, you will lose a finger, you will get a back injury. Like it ain't a joke. And in cultures that are close to danger, particularly male-dominated cultures of physical labor, there is a very intense safety culture around those things precisely because you learn real quick. And how is that not the case with guns? <laughs> like,
0: Interestingly, let me tell you a story which will only heighten your frustration about this. There's a chapter in my book called Bulletproof Glass. In that chapter— I discuss the fact that i witnessed an office renovation at the gun factory at which i was working and the top executives were debating where to place the wall with the bulletproof glass in case somebody from pistol assembly came up and started shooting up the place right so the gun executives knew like right. right, this was inherently dangerous furthermore in that same chapter I explained that my experience in going down to the shooting range and shooting our products and the sort of safety procedures I had to go through. I was like a 20-year senior employee, maybe the most senior employee. I had to fill out basically a 4473, a a federal background check, even though everybody already knew who I was. I had to wear safety goggles. I had to wear a bulletproof vest. I had to wear gloves. I had to keep my muzzle downrange. If I violated any of that... The shooting session was over. Okay. These are the rules inside of every single gun company. Every single gun company. That in other words, to your point about the guys in the trades, the people who are closest to this, they know damn well how how dangerous this is. And yet. The industry and the NRA goes out and basically tells everybody, no, we will have a political system where no such safety measures are mandated. In fact, we're going to run you out of office if you even suggest a fraction of that. Dude, it's insane. Yeah. I mean, if you walk into a carpentry
1: shop with someone who really knows what they're doing and just start like futzing around with yeah. the like table yeah. saw, like they're going to lose their mind. Yeah. Like It's like the first thing when you walk into someone's shop is like, here are the protocols, Put your goggles on, like get your head right, be attentive. And everyone understands that who works around dangerous stuff. That's just like the culture of
0: these places. That, Chris, what you describe with the trades, what I describe about being around guns at a gun factory, that's the sort of culture that I was raised with. Yes, guns were a part of our lives, but man, you did not screw around with them. Like you did not wave muzzles around. You did not joke. They were not a toy. You were very serious. You kept them unloaded. You didn't put your finger near the trigger until you're ready to shoot. Like they were serious things, right? And so- my book opens with my own son being intimidated and attacked by a, quote unquote, Second Amendment patriot at a Black Lives Matter rally where there's all these like 100 of these open carry armed intimidation guys that you've like reported on. Right. And I looked at that and I thought that violates every single gun safety regulation known to man. And I'm thinking I, I looked at that like this is the product that my industry created. How can we stand for this? I don't hear a single gun industry executive criticize it. I don't see the NRA criticize this, And this happened all across our country, right? So everybody knows that this is unsafe. Everybody knows that this radicalization is going to break down norms and lead to terrible spillover effects and, tell, and it's gonna tell troubled 18 and 19-year-old kids that it's okay to fix your problems with an AR-15. Like, everybody knows this, yet nobody is standing. I mean, I'm trying to stand up, but industry leaders are not saying it's wrong. Where are the leaders standing up and saying, that is wrong? When you say attacked, what do you mean by attacked? So he was chanting with a bunch of high school kids, and this guy got in his face and started screaming at him that it was an evil little bastard. And then, And he was armed, like this, I don't know, 50-something-year-old guy, armed. And then he starts poking him in the chest. And my kid is like, did nothing. He's 75 pounds, soaking wet. Like, (laughs) you don't take loaded guns into that sort of situation. Like, it violates every gun safety rule— uh, you know, that anybody has ever been taught. And here I am watching that thinking, oh, this could go south so fast. You know, there's 1,500 people chanting with all these armed people. This guy's screaming at my kid. I'm thinking somebody twitches wrong and the bullets are just going to start flying. So let's go back to the beginning. You talk about how'd you end up in the gun industry? Well, I, you know, I grew up, as I explained, that in this rural place with guns as part of my life. And I hunted all the way through college. And that was a good diversion for me. I mean, I even skipped go quail hunting. And so when I, after I graduated from college, getting into the firearms industry was a little bit like a kid who had played baseball his whole life, you know, getting a minor league contract, right? Like, holy smokes, I get to get paid to go do this, you know? Right. And um, I didn't think anything of it. My association with guns had never been negative. So I didn't, I know that sounds strange to some people, but it was completely positive to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, I have to say like, I've come a long way on this, I grew up in the Bronx. So, just where I'm coming from, I grew up in the Bronx in the 1980s. So, my association with guns were negative because, like, I would hear gunshots in the neighborhood I grew up in sometimes, particularly in, like, that period of time. And, you know, we had 2,300 murders uh, in New York City by the time it was 1992. Like, in my context, like, that's the only thing guns are used for. (laughs) And when I'm growing up, I'd see them be flashed occasionally. I remember being at a swimming pool once, public pool in the Bronx. Like... So we didn't have any of the good associations. Over the course, the trajectory of my life in being a reporter, like, I have now come to understand that, like, in the same way that, like, I feel fondly about, for instance, like, the axe that – my splitting axe that I used to split wood, which I, like, love, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but, like, obviously could do something terrible to someone if it was used. People have that
0: association with guns. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just a completely different contextual – Universe. That, and I think, yes, you're absolutely right. And also, let's face it, guns and the power that they convey, they transmit an almost an immediate sense of freedom and power, this sort of Americana feel, like you're a master of your own destiny. Yeah. I mean, I believe, in, and I experienced in positive ways, but let's be honest, it can be in very negative ways, too. And and I think that's, yeah. that sort of intimidation and power transfer is now is what is at the middle of our political radicalization in and around guns. So you got into the industry, you were psyched because this was something that was, you know, close yeah. to you. And what was your early experience like? It was kind of crazy cowboyish. The industry was much, much smaller, a fraction the size of what it is today. I got what I joke as an entry-level executive job, meaning... I was head of sales and the and the whole sales department was like a couple of us, you know, so it was a paycheck bouncing company in a industry with relatively small family-owned businesses. So, you know, there were some crazy things that happened. Eventually, I grew the sales force to include these other salespeople. We had accidental shootings in the office, you know, like it was just real people, right? They were, these were just people who happened to be who had a a very uh, high degree of fondness for guns. That was their commonality. And as I pulled away and wrote the book, I thought, my God, these are the people that changed our country, right? They're just average people that like guns a lot, but it wasn't some group of, you know, highly educated or buttoned down executives or like they're just a few hundred average people drove the gun industry to what it is. And it got much, much larger and much more powerful.
1: Well, what's the driving? What's that mean? Like to me... There's a question of... So, I mean, we should do the sketch the history, right? The National yeah. Rifle Association is actually founded by Union Army veterans. Yeah. Obviously, the mid-19th century Civil War saw the almost comprehensive mass mobilization of, you know, draft-age men in the country. They all learned to shoot. A lot of them came out of it, you know, having gone to war and, and having a relationship with guns. The NRA's original idea was like this... Very much in this kind of like... You know, it's a little like the Elks or something, yeah. right? Like this sort yeah. of like... Club men group where they get together and they do their thing, right? And it was very much... I don't know, how would you characterize it? It was, it
0: was a kind of gun safety org. Well, camaraderie, safety, sort of Americana, yeah. very clubby. I mean, my grandfather was a proud Roosevelt Democrat, and his favorite hat was his mm. NRA hat, right? It signified sort of responsibility, camaraderie. My father, even through the early part of my childhood, got the NRA magazines and was an NRA member, still the same thing. Then about the time I turned, you know, to a teenager, things started to change. They really started to change after I got in the industry in 1995, I'll give you the short dissertation on the history here of how we got here. This will be just a minute or so, but yeah, so please. the NRA then in 1999, we have now, and I got in in 95, was starting to change then. Obviously, we had Timothy McVeigh in, I believe, 93, who blew up the federal building in Oklahoma City. Wayne Lopier made some very distasteful comments about federal officials. Then in 1999, Columbine happened. We now know that the NRA had meetings behind the scenes at what would have been the NRA convention where they essentially debated two options. Should we be a part of the problem or be a part of the solution and be conciliatory, offer some solution, sit down and maybe change policies or, you know, there were two troubled kids who invaded Columbine High School or really America's first really high profile mass shooting or Maybe we could double down on this. Maybe we could use this to fuel the culture war. Maybe we can tell people that the Clinton administration will come get their guns and it will be good for our membership. And literally, they debated this. It's now proven with the tapes that have come out. Yeah, we have audio tapes of it. And, And basically, they said, eh, screw it. Let's go for the culture war thing. And they did. And so they started the culture war movement. Then 2004, Bush doesn't renew the assault weapons ban. Okay, that removes... Another impediment, 2005, Bush signs PLACA, which is the Protection and Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, which essentially prohibits any liability suits against any gun company for irresponsible marketing. So you've got a culture war started. Assault weapons are okay. Now the federal government says you can't get sued if you market them aggressively. Then people looked around like, hmm, okay, let's roll. About then, Barack Obama in 2007 starts to lead in the polls. The NRA says, okay. Let's go. Racism, conspiracy, hatred, fear. Let's use it to gin up voters. The firearms industry had got going on this AR-15 thing and liability coverage had been granted. And the industry basically looked around and said, the same thing that are driving the voters to the polls for the NRA that they're using to drive membership and drive polls. Guys, that sells guns. Like hatred, fear, conspiracy, racism that sold guns. And if you go look at firearm sales rates from about 1990 to about 2007, they're roughly stable with just a slight increase, and it ticked up during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars with Bush. But starting in 2007, steady climb. It looks like Mount Everest. We went from 8 million guns sold in 2007 to 25 million guns a year sold by the time Donald Trump left office. So that's how we got here.
1: There's a few parts of that story that are interesting. Like, I think there's different ways of conceiving sort of cause and effect and who's the principal and who's the agent between the industry and the NRA. Yeah. So one is to view the NRA as essentially a kind of the industry is the principal and the and the NRA is the agent and that the NRA is essentially a front group for the industry and they do it what sells guns. But the story you tell is actually the opposite. The story you tell is basically, the NRA understanding the sort of power of this certain kind of like
0: culture war paranoia yep. before the industry did and sort of leading A- it there. Absolutely right. And it was sort of it was sort of lizard brain ish, right? Yeah, I don't think that they understood it until they tried it and it worked. And they're like, "Oh wow, we got something here. We, we, we've got this soup. And I, I've heard it reported. Chris, a hundred times. I mean, I'll be, I'm probably the only firearms executive to ever listen to NPR in the morning, but okay, I do. And I hear, I've heard a billion times. Oh, the NRA just does the bidding of the firearms industry. I'm like, no, you have it backwards. Mm-hmm. The NRA runs the show. And let me give you a quick illustrative example. In 2012, we had Sandy Hook, December 14th, 2012, we had Sandy Hook, another one of these horrific shootings you had to report on. And in 2013, we had what was called Manchin-Toomey. It was an amendment to a bill which would have extended background checks and made them universal. The NSSF, which is the industry trade group, basically signaled, hey, we're going to be for this. We think it's good policy. Let's let's give an inch here. Let's try to make things better. But they signaled that but did not take the official position. They just stood back and wait, stood back and wait. The NRA is in these negotiations. The NRA gets about halfway into it. And then the NRA, through Chris Cox and LaPierre, they decide screw it. We're not going to be for it. We're going to score it. Why? Because we can screw these two or three moderate Republicans and we can screw these two or three moderate Democrats that are kind of pushing this. And the NSSF and the industry who had previously said we're going to be for it, they said, oh, yeah, we hear you, Uh, big boss NRA, we're with you. And they bought tons of ads and they went all in on fighting it. So you see who really runs the show, right? It's the culture war from the NRA because that's what drives the whole thing now. We'll be right back after we take this quick break.
2: Former President Donald Trump is facing 91 indictment charges, yet he remains the Republican frontrunner. On MSNBC's podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump, veteran prosecutors Andrew Weissman and Mary McCord break down the biggest legal developments and how they could alter the election.
0: Never had a president who engaged in this kind of conduct who's running for office. He is using the criminal cases for his own campaigning.
2: Search for Prosecuting Donald Trump wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Tuesday.
1: This culture war, the sort of transformation of the NRA from an industry group or a one-issue group to a culture war group yeah. is fascinating because it presages a lot of our politics more broadly. So, like, it used to be the case, right? And some of the NRA's power was precisely this sort of single-issue power. In fact, we're watching a very similar thing happening with AIPAC in a really interesting way, right? Like APAC's power used to be that it didn't matter what your other politics were. You could be an evangelical Christian. You could be for abortion or against abortion. You could be an urban liberal. You could be a rural conservative. We don't care. If you're strong in Israel, we support you, right? And what's happened is that it's gotten harder to uphold that amidst the culture war politics of America and polarization. And you can watch this happening in the APAC where they're moving more towards being essentially a right-wing group, yep, right? that's correct. Not there yet. But the NRA, it was that before, right? It used to be like, we don't care about your other
0: stuff. Yeah, there was—they claimed to be a bipartisan organization, right? They right. endorsed Democrats. There were still—in the early 2000s, there were still endorsed Democrats from the NRA. But— and the point of my book and the thesis of my book is exactly what you said that what the NRA did predates our politics or our modern politics by about four or five years because it in my experience and I was living inside of it it was like I was living in the kitchen where it was cooking up the dish to hand to the American right and it did and now so much of what the NRA did i mean i can't think of anything that sort of epitomizes Trumpism and the American right now that I didn't experience in the NRA five to 10 years prior.
1: But talk about what, when you saw it up close, like what were you thinking about it and what was the process that produced it? Because what I hear from you, and this is really key and important, it's essentially a trial and error process of like what sells. And it's, it's a little like what comedians do. Like they go into a bunch of rooms and people laugh at certain jokes and they keep those and other jokes bomb and they lose those and they iterate on that. Until, if they're a good comedian, they've got a set that is just just slaves the whole way through, right? So you've got a situation where you're trying different stuff. You're seeing what hits, what pops, what gets your direct mail list fired up, what gets people calling, what sells guns. You keep that. You get rid of the other stuff. Was that basically like And what did that
0: look like up close? So I tell the story about QAnon coming onto the scene in our modern politics and me being not surprised at all. Why? Almost exactly like you describe with a comedian trying this stuff out. I watched Wayne LaPierre 10 or 12 years prior to that, during the Obama elections, where he would stand up on stage in front of all these executives, and almost like he was trying out a joke. He would be like, and Barack Obama is going to rewrite the Constitution. Pause. And then everybody cheered. He's like, holy shit. They believed it. Well, I, I know. You and I, Chris, have studied the Constitution. I don't think uh, a president can rewrite the Constitution. but right. But he said it. And they believed it, and they cheered. And it was almost like he said, well, let's try another one. Um, uh, Barack Obama is going to outlaw hunting ammunition, which he actually said in, in an ad. And everybody, like, they cheered at that one. And it was almost like whatever they said, right. hey, they couldn't say anything wrong. That's why when I see Donald Trump get up on stage and emit this word salad that sounds, you know, completely conspiratorial, or Marjorie Taylor Greene, or Matt Gates, or whatever, I'm like— I've seen all this before. Like, I saw Wayne LaPierre do this 10 years ago. It's just they've taken it to a new level. The Obama election is really an inflection point yeah. because
1: yeah. in the transformation of the NRA is a cultural and political force and in the data, like, I mean, like, you, like the gun, people going to buy guns because the black man named Barack
0: Obama <laughs> was getting elected president. Like, it's just in black and white in that data. You cannot get away from it. And that's the thing, out of everything that I wrote about, the sort of under you know, just below the surface racism that the NRA tapped into has pissed off the industry more than anything because they don't want to deal with it. But I tell stories of, for instance, I was walking into an NRA show once and there's a guy with, and this is during the Obama administration, there's a guy with a t-shirt that says, don't blame me, I voted for the white guy. And everybody's giving him a high five, right? Right. Um, There's a guy walking through the NRA convention selling a shirt with a picture of an African lion and a picture of Barack Obama on it. And it says, African lion, lion, African. Lion, African. And yeah. he's selling the <laughs> shirt and people are buying it and they're like, that's an awesome shirt. And nobody in the NRA show says anything. They don't kick him. I have a picture of it because I wanted it for proof. Um, it, nobody kicks him out. Nobody says that's inappropriate. At the same time, they say, well, we're not racist. I'm like, excuse me. Um, this is racist, you know? And so it wasn't even really hidden. I mean, at that same convention, they had Glenn Beck speak who was at that time, you know, King of the birthers. So yeah, it was, it was on the surface. And I mean, in that way, Obama handed the NRA a messaging gift because they organized around it. Are there black people in the industry? Very, very few, very few. I mean, I can count on one hand, probably uh, as the ones that I've met through 25 years in the industry. So it's really, really a very
1: white space. It really is, yeah.
0: It really is. And is it very extremely male? It pretty much. That's changing some, but yeah, I don't know the official statistics, but if I, if I had to guess, you know, certainly in the management ranks, I would guess it in the 75 to 80% male.
1: And is it mostly folks, when you say normal people, average folks, like people like yourself who just came to it from being people who grew up in gun culture and fairly really is. traditional
0: yep. rural places? I tell that story. It's changing now because the companies are becoming so large that sort of the quarterly capitalist pressures of America are professionalizing it more. But certainly, up until this point, the one commonality that I experienced in all of the movers and shakers in the industry is just that they loved guns. I mean, that was it. There wasn't like, they weren't Harvard educated. They weren't button-down military types. They just love guns. There's a few other things are happening, right? So Barack Obama, when I think about,
1: like, the sort of radicalization of this culture, right, this change from we're gun enthusiasts the way that someone might be a hunting enthusiast, fishing enthusiast, watch enthusiast, ATV enthusiast, right? There's, like, a million different things that people are really into that they order their lives around, that they might even draw kind of identity from, that they want to see reflected in their politics. And then there's the, like, totalizing, conspiratorial, reactionary, proto-fascist worldview of the modern NRA, right? The conversion from one to the other is kind of what part of the story. So there's a few inflection points. Barack Obama's election is a huge one. I do wonder how much, and this is uh, Spencer Ackerman just wrote an incredible book about the war on terror called Reign of Terror. Like, I do wonder how much having a permanently mobilized war footing society for 20 years Including, I mean, again, and we go back to the original NRA, right? Yeah. What was your origin of the NRA? Well, the whole country went to war. They yeah. came out of it, and the NRA started as this rifle club of veterans who used war. Now, our experience of war and terror is extremely different because we don't have a draft, and a very, very small percentage of the population bears the brunt of it. But I do wonder how much you think that the that war footing for twenty
0: years has an effect on this cultural shift. I think it's been huge, and I'm going to get to that. I'm going to back up just a second to add one more component. The industry for 25 years prior, just as this was kind of winding down as I got there, but had accepted the fact that it was a graying, aging, waning sort of industry. Everybody bemoaned that it was going away. We felt under attack. The Clinton administration was, was proposing new legislation. And so you had this mantra in the industry that you had to accept anybody that was a shooter, anybody that was a hunter, Anybody that was pro-gun was your friend. Why? Because you needed every customer you could get and you could never do anything that would dissuade the industry from dying even one more little inch because it was never going to grow, right? It wasn't like there were fewer hunters, there were all this stuff. Well, when that started to turn and the industry started to blow up, that old DNA of accepting everybody, no matter what, did not go away. That old DNA of castigating every enemy because you needed to push your enemies away so you could grow or just exist, did not go away. So when you bring the militarization in that you're talking about and you have some admirable things about uh, military veterans joining the industry, but some also dangerous things, the militarization, the sort of couch commando culture that I described, that was a pejorative term that the industry used to describe some of these people that kind of wanted to use militarization to demonstrate your manhood. Like... You had this DNA mindset that nobody could ever be criticized. And so you end up here now where even the worst elements of gun ownership, like, again, people that invade the Michigan Capitol, are January 6th insurrectionists that had gun flags. They didn't have Chevy truck flags. They didn't have Nike shoe flags. They didn't have barbecue girl flags. They had AR-15 flags. Kyle Rittenhouse. Every single time something happens with a gun, the industry either says nothing or praises it. Why? It's that old DNA where they have been Mm. told they're victimized. And that victimization is really key to radicalization, as you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've often said that the people with high degrees of relative power combined with a genuine self-perception of victimization, persecution is the kind of engine of reactionary politics. Donald Trump is a great example of that, who's bingo? objectively an incredibly rich and powerful person who always feels like slighted and put upon and persecuted and has his whole life like that. That's it. Those are those are the two exactly components of the nuclear reactor of reactionary politics.
0: Exactly. And (laughs) I saw it like you watch, Chris Uvalde. It won't it's already started, but you watch this will kick in. What will they say? Look, the evil liberals are coming after our freedoms. They're coming after our guns. They're going to use those 19 kids to take apart the Constitution. See, we really are under attack. We're the real patriots. I mean, if you don't see Trump in this, come on.
1: So you have more, you know, you have a, a country on war footing. You have Barack Obama, the first black president. You've got other things that are driving polarization to an increasing rural-urban divide, Um, and I don't know how much guns are the cause of that and how much they're the effect of that, Um, whether people are polarizing around that or because people are from very different places and have different experiences between Northwest Montana and the Bronx, right, of what a gun is and what it's used for. So then the other thing is like this, you talk about this in the book, the turn towards openly conceiving of the gun to kill people. Yeah to use to maybe wage war against the government. Like, I think of it as these sort of three order, three layers of gun ownership, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, the first to me and the least menacing and the most I can get with is I like to hunt and I like to go to the shooting range, and I like doing those two things. I'm a hobbyist. Mm-hmm. Then there's the I need to protect my home. Now, I think there's a lot of reactionary stuff in the I need to protect my home, <laughs> mm-hmm. particularly because a lot of times— The people who own guns to, quote, protect their homes are living in places where, like, they're not very high burglary, (laughs) high crime Mm -hmm. areas. So, like, I'm not sure how rational that I need to protect my home. But, okay, fine. That's another thing. The third level, which is the level that we're not out, is, like, I need to prepare for Armageddon. I need to prepare to go to war against the libs. I need to prepare to go to war against the government. And this is explicitly what the marketing's about, what the culture's about, what the messaging's about. And that, to me, is, like... You see it now in in mainstream Republican ads, like, the purpose of the gun is to take arms against the government, which is a deranged thing for political culture
0: to say. And, Chris, that's where the growth—that's where the business growth is, right? Because these things are not consumable goods. They're durable. If you're in one of the two categories that you just described that you are defending, which I generally agree with, you, you only are, need one gun to defend you your You have
1: all the guns you need. It Maybe will last you're, you're, you're 100 years.
0: <laughs> you're set. No, that's right. Yeah. yeah, And so you look for growth. Well, where's the growth yeah. coming? It's coming in these basically insurrectionists, right? Like these things are becoming a middle finger to the libs. Like, what do you do? I'll buy an AR-15 to own the libs. What are you going to do to own them again? I want to buy another AR-15. Like they're literally a symbol. We'll be right back after we take this quick
2: break. Shin Saki. Have you ever seen the
1: house this dysfunctional?
2: Rachel Maddow.
1: If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it?
2: Monday's Back to Back.
1: Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What, What do you think it means?
2: Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC. Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The weekend.
0: We want to get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening.
2: It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in.
0: Conversation we begin and that you continue all week long.
2: The weekend, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC.
1: One of the most important stats about gun ownership in America that I say to people all the time is that the percentage of households with guns is declining at the same time the number of guns is increasing. So when you
0: think about that, it's like... That has reversed here, though, in the last few years. On the household front. Yeah. And then this is the frightening thing. Once it gets to a certain point, this becomes like a self-perpetuating storm. It's a storm that creates its own weather. Here's an example. After Buffalo and you're an African-American family somewhere in the country, are you more or less likely to go purchase a gun because you're freaked out? I'm not blaming you one bit, right? If if there's enough, I have a very good African-American friend who lives outside of Atlanta who doesn't like AR-15s. He called me during the pandemic and he said, Bussy, I'm buying an AR-15. He's got a blurb on the back of my book. I said, Darrell, what what are you buying an AR-15 for? He goes, look, man, I live in a mixed race area of Atlanta. All these guys are rolling every day to work with loaded AR-15s. They are hoping for a race war. And if one breaks out, somebody's got to protect me and my family. Okay? See, this is, yeah.
1: And that logic, which is both totally rational in the micro and totally madness in the macro, right? Like the individual rational decision. And this, by the way, that is the exact calculation people go through in... The Bronx, in the west side of Chicago, in the east side of St. Louis. If you are in places with high numbers of people who are armed, who are using those weapons to resolve conflicts outside the purview of the law, it obviously becomes more incentivized and rational to arm yourself in preparation. Which is how you get, you know, places with high levels of gun violence, in which the law is essentially receded, in which homicides are unsolved and unheld accountable in which the solution to homicide is essentially reprisal killing. This is a thing that you see in the United States. You see it throughout all human history in all different kinds of cultures. Like if you don't have the mechanisms in place to resolve natural human conflict nonviolently, you will get mechanisms to resolve it violently. And in in a technology where arms are plentiful, that will be the
0: mechanism. And so the NRA figured this out, right? And in its most elemental form Think about the words that you know from Wayne LaPierre, probably the best. What stops a bad guy with a gun, yes. a good guy with a gun. Yep. So what is it? He just sold one more gun there. That's right. right. You had the bad guy with a gun. You just sold, sold one. So if you have more bad guys, you need more good guys with guns. Then if you have more bad guys, pretty soon, I don't know if you if you can see where this is going, everybody's got a gun. <laughs> I'll never forget after the Las Vegas shooting. I was in Vegas,
1: which remains one of the most This is the most
0: underreported thing that's happened in the last 15 years, but yeah.
1: I got to say that of all the of all the mass shootings that I've covered, that one, I was just telling this some day. That one like was like a vortex of meaning. It felt like it repelled because it was so planned out. Yeah. It was so sophisticated, yeah. right? It wasn't someone walks into a grocery store or school. It was as far as we can tell, entirely unmotivated by any specific ideological grievance, that it just felt like it repelled meaning. Like I couldn't get my hands around what I was covering, other than a horrific, horrific tragedy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But in repelling that meaning, I totally agree that it was like you couldn't get you couldn't get a grip on that story. And I, I remember being down there and feeling that way, like. Yeah. It felt like an angel of death, right or like a biblical it felt like biblical it was like yeah, raining down on people wh- right yeah. raining down like what wh- and why did he do it and, uh, here's the you know and it's like none of it made any meaning out of it and I went to a gun shop after that in Vegas, and the guys told me what is
0: borne out by the data, which is that gun sales go up after mass shootings yeah they essentially serve as advertisements for the for the weapon and what's interesting in that one. And I note that in my book, that after Vegas, the worst mass shooting ever in the history of the United States, I was in the industry then, and gun sales really didn't tick up then. And that told me, oh my God, the dog has finally caught the car here. And Bloomberg actually wrote Hmm. a story two weeks after that shooting, and the headline was, gun sales have stopped increasing after mass shootings. Like, they became, Hmm. we became so desensitized to it that we didn't even have the reactionary ban guns go out and buy guns. Like, it, they're right, so common. Right. It, it didn't even happen after 500 people were shot. Why did you leave? When did you leave? I left in 2020. I stayed in for so long because I was, I you know, I held to the principles that that I believed and I still believe in. And I was the only one inside the industry that was doing anything, right? I, all the stories I tell in the book about me trying to take it apart from the inside or weaken it from the inside. Like, I was the only one there. And I thought, if I leave, like, who's going to do this? And I, I know it—, it for some people, that's hard to, to rationalize. It's not, it's not totally different than what people think of, like, Trump administration officials who, who right, thought, right. well, if I leave, somebody worse is going to come in. I've built up this perch of power. Reporters are interested in it. When policies come up, I'm somebody that can insert reason. Maybe I can talk these people into not being so devoutly crazy. But, you know, I couldn't. I could, I, I mean, I lost the battle.
1: What are your relationships like with other people in the industry over this time? Like people are like, oh, Ryan, he's a lib. He's a
0: squish. Like I've had people report to me after the book came out, and it would get back to me like big-time executives that say, I always thought that sucker was a Democrat. You know, like, really? You sit around talking about this, but just the fact that I would utter criticisms, just the fact that I would say that these conspiracies were conspiracies, like, they looked at me askance, like I wasn't, you know, they had the suspicion I wasn't a true believer. Like, yeah, damn right, I wasn't a true believer.
1: And true believers, what I hear from you is that this complicated process of sort of selection and acculturation and kind of being in the bunker together, at least perceived, and the Demographic basis from which this is drawn, which is like, you know, if you just blindly took a bunch of white male rural folks Mm -hmm. (laughs) who are into guns who aren't gun executives, like you'd have a pretty good sense of what their politics would be generally. That this was all producing a kind of monoculture, it seems like, in that world, right? Like there's
0: not a lot of diversity of viewpoint and politics. Oh, I would, I tell uh, one of the stories I tell is about a day of in my life at at an NRA convention, and I hop on an elevator. And, you know, I have a badge on that I was—my uh, my badge that I was going to the convention with. And people would just—like, it would be a packed elevator, and people just instantly start talking to you about politics. It's just like, that damned Obama, you know, just like—I'm like, like what—how right. do you—the the assumption of sameness in that environment yeah, right. was just right. absolutely stifling.
1: 2020 is another inflection point, I think, because of when you talk about your friends— gun sales went through the roof in 2020 and in some ways I think we're still living with the after effects of it yeah. and at some level it makes a little bit of sense because you know this kind of apocalyptic sense everything shutting down who knows what comes next a once in a century plague there's going to be zombies at your door yeah. but it was a record setting year for gun sales and we're living with the after effects i yeah. mean i think you know Establishing cause is always difficult, but I don't think it's a crazy hypothesis to say the massive increase in gun sales in the last few years relates to the big increase in gun violence.
0: I think the NRA and the industry learned, like, the theories were all born out there, right? What drives gun sales? Fear, Fear, mercy, hatred, tumult,
1: angst. It doesn't even have to be fear of Obama. I mean, that's what's so interesting, right? Because it's like oh, yeah, exactly. fear of a
0: virus. But then you throw Black Lives Matter in it. Like all, of course. And then from so right, yeah. January 1, 2020 to January seventh, twenty 2021, dude, we had it all. We had fear of COVID. We had fear of Black Lives Matter protesters. We had fear, I mean, you just went through it, right? But neither you or I have ever lived through a a time that was anywhere close to that tumultuous. And that corresponds perfectly with by far the highest 12-month sales period of guns ever in the history of America. So everything that the NRA thought 15 years ago, wait, hate, conspiracy, like this, oh yeah, it does. It drives gun sales. And it almost got Trump reelected, right?
1: Well, I guess I, I want to sort of finish off in the place I started. Let, let's take a step back from these political questions about what can get Republican votes. Can you bust the filibuster to get reasonable? And there's low-hanging fruit on the policy level, closing the background check loophole, yeah. you know, other stuff. But one of the arguments that people make, and it's it's tough because it's um, one of the better reactionary arguments. People make this argument about carbon, too, and it's not a crazy one, which is like – whatever you do isn't going to be big enough to deal with the scale of the problem. I mean, there's 400 plus million guns in the country like, OK, you close the background check loophole, yada, yada. My question is, what would break the fever? What would stop the boat moving in the direction of Because to me, it's not just that it's increasingly dangerous to American safety because of shootings. It's very much posing an increasing threat to the liberal democratic order, to nonviolent transfers
0: of power, et cetera. Like, it's a complete existential threat. I, think. I I do too. And this is what I argue in the book. I think the existential threat to our democracy in two areas yeah. is greatly understated. One, in the actual, like, insurrection, armed people may try to take the government apart. There's that. There's also this, is anybody really free if you're not free to experience an education in a grade school? Like, you have, you have two kind of existential threats for, mm-hmm. for a decent democracy. I think what will sort of turn the ship... I have a a couple ideas. Yes, you know, these incremental, marginal things on the fringe that make things a little bit better instead of a little bit worse, i.e. background checks, red flag laws. I also am a big fan of turning the ship in a cultural way and essentially taking what once was very uncool to do, this armed intimidation, this you know, open carry. That stuff used to be not cool, right? And so we didn't see it in our country. It was a norm that wasn't broken. And I think outlying open carry across our country and really putting stiff laws in for armed intimidation would go a long way towards tamping down that sort of cultural explosion that has told it's a minority, but it's a vocal minority of people that it is okay to go out there and intimidate, that it is okay yes. to use guns to scare people, that it is okay to march into the Michigan Capitol and scream at lawmakers with an AR loaded AR-15. Like, I'm sorry, but in a democracy, that is not okay. We have to figure out a way to turn that.
1: I completely agree with that. I, I've said this, I think, before on this program, and I think said it before on this podcast, I think on the show, which is that it's a increasing example of the Second Amendment eating the first. Yeah, yeah. Which is— if you go to a protest and you're expressing your First Amendment right to free speech and to petition your government, and then someone comes up to you expressing their First Amendment right to free speech in the government, yep. but they are carrying a deadly weapon that's loaded, you've kind of lost your First Amendment right. Yep. Yep. <laughs> because you don't really and, – and the way I put it this way too is like think of the following scenarios. Knock on the door. You open it up. It's your neighbor, and they're angry at you because you put your garbage on their part of the curb, and they're like, hey. Third time I've asked you, man, please don't do that, right? Don't do that. Okay. That's the sort of unpleasant interaction. Now, you run the same interaction, the guys holding a loaded weapon. Those aren't a difference in degree. Those are a difference in kind. Yep. Those don't exist on the same planet. Yep. Those like, and so, you know, the difference between civil conflict in a civil society, in the liberal democracy, arguments, Protests, counter-protests, with and without guns, just exist in different planes of
0: being. So, this is the best analogy I have to demonstrate this. Let's say you're at a, and I and I use this in my TED talk. But let's say you're at a dinner party with nine of your friends, and you're waiting on the tenth. You're having a political conversation. You're drinking a lot of wine. Things get crazy, but there's a certain rule, right? There's a certain civility that you hold to. You may you may even like raise the volume, but nobody screams. No, like this is the way things work. The tenth person shows up. That person walks into the room, has a loaded AR-15, finger near the trigger. They sat down at the table. Conversation freaking stops. The only opinion that matters now is that guy's opinion. Yeah. And that's what yeah. this armed intimidation does to our democracy. It upends all the rules of civility. There's no expertise. There's no, like, debate. There's no, yeah. none of the things that govern modern you know, civil politics. That's out the window. And so you think that's actually, like, a key legislative reform? I I think it's such a a key symbolic thing. Like, Mm -hmm. because we have provided license to radical right-wing actors in this country that intimidation is okay, you know, that racism is okay. Like, that's what Trump did, right? He gave license to all this. We have to figure out a way to take that license away. I personally believe it's very key. I think, as you described in your lead-in, that is a way to start to turn the culture to go in the other direction.
1: Ryan Bussey is a former firearms executive. He's a senior advisor at Giffords, the gun safety organization. He's author of Gunfight My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America, which is a memoir, as you heard, of his life and career inside that industry, which he has subsequently left. That was uh, so illuminating and thoughtful, Ryan. I really, really
0: appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thank you for having me, Chris. I appreciate your show and your thoughtfulness and your uh, uh, willingness to delve into tough topics. Thank you.
1: Once again, my thanks to Ryan Bussy. That was really a fascinating conversation. And again, I'm trying to search for ways out of what feels like this kind of claustrophobic corner we're locked into. I'm not sure whether Ryan's description made me feel less or more claustrophobic, but I do think like understanding the psychology and the sort of sociology of this is pretty important. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Tweet us with the hashtag #WithPod. Email WithPod at gmail.com, and be sure to follow us on TikTok by searching for WithPod. Why Is This Happening is presented by MSNBC and NBC News, produced by Donnie Holloway, Tiffany Champion, and Brendan O'Melia, engineered by Bob Mallory, and features music by Eddie Cooper. You can see more of our work, including links to things we mentioned here, by going to NBCNews.com slash Why Is This Happening.
2: primary season is here. If you've got voting questions, we've got voting answers. Visit mbcnews.com slash plan your vote. You'll find when and how to vote in your state's primary election. Visit mbcnews.com slash your vote today.